This is Car Expert. And I think we're going to have to wait and see longer term how the Everest holds up. But based on our first experience, yeah, it feels like the superior car. What's the demographic for this vehicle? They sort of said it was like a mix of everything. The GV60 they see is the more progressive vehicle in their lineup. I think it's really cool that there's an Australian manufacturing touch inherent to the Mustang. G'day, Mike Costello. G'day, Mandy Turner. And g'day, Scott Colley. Hello, guys. Detroit Motor Show has been on this week. We've had our very own William Stopford over there. Have you guys heard from him? What's it been like there? Yeah, look, it looks like it's been a bit quiet over there. It's funny. I, I, I can remember, you know, the, the way you'd always traditionally start your year as a motoring journalist going back many, many years was the Detroit Motor Show or the North American International Auto Show, to give it its full name, held in January, minus 30 degrees, sleet, snow, blizzards, you name it. It was always the place to be. I, I did more than I can remember, but it's been moved and it's been moved to more hospitable uh, parts of the year uh, to September, which is clearly warmer. And Will was there. Obviously, the hero for the Detroit show was the new generation Ford Mustang. Not every day that a, a new iteration of the iconic pony car lobs. So that obviously stole pretty much every single show there was to steal. We've got some great coverage on that car. And it's good to see that even though motor shows are dwindling and disappearing at a rate of knots, the iconic Detroit show lives on, albeit at a different time of year. Detroit is one of those shows that even when it's a quiet year and even when it feels like things are a little bit low-key relative to what they should be, it's still important because it is the heart of the US automotive industry. And Ford using it to launch the new Mustang, although it was outside the show itself, got a whole lot of owners with all of the seven generations of car to stampede to Detroit and actually put on a bit of an owner event in an attempt to kind of build a bit of hype and, and really get the community together. Jeep apparently was doing indoor test drives, so you could actually drive a Wrangler on a purpose-built track with a 30-degree slope. So I know that it, it's not quite the grand showcase of the American automotive industry it used to be, but the Detroit show definitely still has a bit to offer. And I think there was a model that they pitched a couple of years ago, which was almost like Goodwood, uh, where everything was outdoors in the middle of June, in the middle of American summer, and it was more of a motoring festival. COVID hit before the first one of those could happen, and they were using the Kobo Center where they host that motor show as a field hospital rather than uh, rather than for motor shows for a couple of years. So hopefully without COVID, with a proper run-up at it, and with the experience from this year, it can build off what's quite a low base back to the point where that show is the jewel in the crown of the American industry and maybe it's an American rival to Goodwood. Wouldn't that be cool? Actually, I think I saw Goodwood Revival uh, is just about wrapped up too. I know that's different to the Festival of Speed, but I would love to go to something like that. (laughs) Given your love for old cars that break down all the time, Mandy, I can imagine Ah. you would be right at home at the Goodwood uh, Revival wearing an old flat cap and some sort of checkerboard checkerboard clothing. I can see that vividly. You know me too well. (laughs) We're going to talk about this week's biggest car news and to help us out, Jack Quick, hello to you. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. I reckon probably the biggest news of this week has been the reveal of the 2024 Ford Mustang. Um, And I I sort of have seen that maybe the design has divided the uh, car expert team. But um, first... We'll get all the details from you. Yeah, Mandy, that's right. So Ford has just revealed its uh, seventh generation Mustang Coupe and Convertible coming to Australia. It's due in Australia in late 2023, so still a little bit more of a wait, but we do know it is coming. And uh, what's going to be powering it? It's going to be a familiar 2.3-litre EcoBoost turbo four-cylinder, as well as what we all like to hear, uh, the 5-litre Coyote uh, naturally aspirated V8 engine still lives on. And um, Power and torque are still to be confirmed, but uh, Ford has said it's going to be more than before and it's going to be really cool to see. And um, as standard, it's going to be uh, there's going to be a 10-speed automatic and uh, with, there's also going to be a 6-speed uh, manual transmission, but that's only going to be for the V8. 
And um, seeing that all of this four-cylinder and V8 goodness, there's going to be uh, – there's no hybrid uh, like we've been talking about. You might have heard previously. And there's also no, not going to be an all-wheel drive version, purely rear-wheel drive, so all the fun. <laughs> and um, so – Looking at it on the outside, there's more um, more of an evolutionary style of exterior styling that I would say, as this uh, compared to the sixth generation. And um, on the inside, um, high spec models get a really cool uh, 13.2 inch touchscreen and a 12.3 digital instrument cluster. It's all in one housing, similar to other um, modern cars that I've seen, but it looks really cool in that Mustang. And then there's also another really cool feature uh, that's an electric handbrake that resembles a traditional one. And so it functions like a normal uh, handbrake, but it's electric. And there's also this really cool special drift mode that I haven't actually seen how it works yet, but apparently you operate it through the touchscreen and you must be able to obviously drift. It'd be very cool to see. But that's not all. Uh, I sound like a salesman. Um, there's a special one, a uh, special uh, variant called the Dark Horse, and that's also coming to Australia. It's um, going to be the flagship of the Mustang range, and it's going to be powered by a specially modified 5-litre uh, V8, and apparently Ford is targeting around uh, 373 kilowatts of power for that Mustang Dark Horse, which sounds like a lot. And so expect to see um, both automatic and manual options for that. We'll have to wait and see. And uh, the, the specifications kind of mirror um, the outgoing um, Mustang Mark One that was a little bit problematic, if you recall, um, back a, a year ago, year or so ago. So this Dark Horse um, has really cool uh, sporty bo- uh, body add-ons. It also has a Torsen Limited slip diff, a bigger rear sway bar, a better uh, strut tower brace, as well as uh, new front dampers. i just like to, ni- ni- like to know, guys, what do you think of this new Mustang? I think the first thing that is probably worth us noting is that it isn't that new. Uh, under the skin, it shares an evolution of the previous car's chassis. Uh, the engines are an evolution of the previous car's engines. And the way it looks, obviously, is evolutionary as well. With all of that said, uh, I think it looks fantastic on the outside. I love the sound of the dark horse because the Mac 1 is quite an appealing concept. This, this last Mustang was already quite a, a sharp handling thing. The idea of taking that to another level from the factory from launch is really quite cool, I think. I think the final thing that stood out to me about this Mustang though is the interior. The current car has a really interesting retro modern design. It's got what looked like a classic instrument cowl. It's got the old circular air vents on top of the dash and then screens integrated quite neatly into that. The new one just has a wraparound screen display like pretty much everything else. I'm a little disappointed by that. I was hoping Ford would go further down the retro path and maybe give a little bit more love to the Mustang so that it didn't look like any other new car inside. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Scully, because I couldn't agree with you more. I think the uh, the new interior looks pretty flashy and has all the tech, but I'm wondering whether it's going to be as usable as the old one was. There's something very usable about a more analog approach. So that'll be inter- interesting to see. I also want to point out there's a real Australian touch to this car. There's a company out in Geelong in the west of Victoria called Carbon Revolution that makes lightweight carbon fibre wheels, just as strong as alloy wheels, but about half the weight. Uh, now, they've signed a massive deal to supply wheels on that Mustang Dark Horse that Jack mentioned earlier, the range-topping Dark Horse. So the previous had done some special edition Shelbys and the Ford GT, but this is the first full series Ford that's used the Australian-made wheels. And I think it's really cool that there's an Australian manufacturing touch inherent to the Mustang because, as we know, Australia is one of the biggest markets for that car. It's a hugely popular vehicle here and has been the top-selling sports car in Australia for about eight years now. And I imagine the new one will be no different to the one that it replaces. Well, we've been talking about this, I feel like, for years now. Ferrari's first crossover, the 2023 Puro Sangue, has been unveiled. I'm pretty sure I said that right, Jack. Yes, I do have to apologise if I pronounce it wrong as well, but I've been <laughs> pronouncing it Puro Sangue, um, very Croft-like in my mannerisms when I say that. <laughs> but yeah, so Fa- Ferrari's revealed its uh, first ever SUV, and it's also powered by a 6.5-litre naturally aspirated V12 engine, which 
is crazy for an SUV. And um, it has 533 kilowatts of power as well as 716 meters of torque. So it's not a, a not very powerful V12. It's a very powerful and naturally aspirated V12. It has a red line of like beyond 8,000 revs from memory. And I reckon it's going to sound insane in person if I ever get the chance, which I highly doubt. Well, I'll get the chance to hear. And it's also going to be um, made into an eight-speed dual clutch, which means it's going to be very fast. It's uh, Ferrari's uh, quoting it's going to have zero to 100 time of 3.3 seconds, a top speed of more than 310 uh, kilometers an hour, which is a, a huge deal because the car weighs more than two tons. And it also has a um, 100-liter fuel tank so i imagine it's going to be quite a guzzler the thing about the puro sangue uh just to really quadruple down on the aggressive italian accent there that i find quite interesting is that ferrari has not called it an suv or a crossover it's just talking about it like it's the new shape that grand tours are and that's probably true given we know the urus the bentayga those sort of cars are, are taking classic dna and reinterpreting them in a new body style um i'm curious to know how the coach doors or what ferrari calls welcome doors are going to change the way that you interact with that interior because one of the criticisms of cars like the gtc4 lusso and the ff and before that the 612 scaglietti was that they had beautiful big back seats, but getting in there was very difficult through the long front doors and having a short rear door really ruins your proportions. So I, I do think Ferrari deserves some credit for really comprehensively engineering a solution to one of the big problems with luxurious high-end SUVs. But I'm going to be curious to see in person how it actually plays out and whether it's managed to get the proportions right, but also make the back seats comfortable and usable and easy to access. I think another interesting aspect to this car is, you know, Ferrari's taking a bit of a bit of a punt here on its on its image because there's obviously going to be those people that say, well, you've made an SUV, your brand's dead now, you've forsaken sports cars and you've gone down the crossover path like everybody else. And I think Ferrari's really tried to circumvent that with capping the production of the Puro Sangue quite substantially. So this could sell well. You could sell in pretty big volumes with this if you really wanted to. But out of its installed annual capacity across the company, 15,000 cars a year, it's saying only 20% of that is going to be the Puta Sangue. So that points to about 3,000 per year over a four to five year life cycle. So this is not going to be some mainstream Porsche Cayenne or even Lamborghini Urus type thing that you see with regularity. It's going to be a rare bird. There's not going to be many of them floating around anywhere, especially in Australia. And Ferrari is basically already sold out. The amount of interest that it's taken, according to senior executives that I've been reading, are saying that they've basically sold out as many as they could build across pretty much the entire life cycle, and they're really only inviting existing buyers to to, to make the plunge and get a put a sangue rather than broadening it out. So I think it's a very interesting approach. It's not quite the approach that some rivals have taken with their SUVs in terms of how they're going to sell it, and I think um, that's really worth noting. Well, it seems like the the week of reveals, Jack, we've also had photos through of the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, which apparently is the XV, but just a, a name change now, right? Yes, Mandy, that's right. So Subaru has revealed um, its replacement for the XV as it's known in Australia, and it's going to be called the Crosstrek Globally. So get used to the name. You'll be hearing it a lot. Uh, so it's first of all, it's going to be going on sale in Japan. It says in 2023 or later, which sounds really confusing, but apparently it's it's coming. And um, details for the Australian market are coming soon. So it's all very vague, but something is happening and it will, we will get it at some stage, I'd have to say. At this stage, uh, Subaru has only revealed uh, the hybrid version of the Crosstrek uh, so far for Japan. And we'll have to wait and see uh, for the rest of the lineup at this stage. There's lots of holes in this. Um, it's expected this engine, uh, the hybrid powertrain, is a, a two-liter as an evolution of the existing uh, two-liter e-boxer powertrain, which mates together um, a petrol engine which produces 110 kilowatt uh, and 196 newton meters with a small electric motor and a lithium-ion battery. Um, a few things uh, Subaru is claiming with this uh, new generation model, it's going to have uh, less vibrations and less engine noise 
And um, all of this rides on a version of the the Subaru Global platform, which also underpins uh, the latest generation, Lavorg and WRX. And um, on the outside, James would hate me if I didn't mention this, it looks like the vision... um, so it uh, looks like the Visive Adrenaline concept from 2019, which looks very crazy, but very much like the concept, I would have to say. And um, on the inside, there's a really familiar 11.6-inch uh, uh, touchscreen, vertical touchscreen um, that you would have seen if you've seen in WRX or an Outback in the last little bit. And there's also this really cool a new wide-angle uh, black-and-white camera in the eyesight system, so an, an additional camera to keep you safe on the road. But I'd like to know, guys, is this update enough? I think the answer to that has to be no if the e-boxer engine is anything like the current e-boxer. Subaru has a partnership with Toyota Globally. They share an electric vehicle architecture, and they're going to share more going forward. But that hasn't extended to hybrid tech, and that means that the hybrid system in the current Forester and the current XV are really, really disappointing. They feel more mild hybrid than anything else because the electric motor just doesn't have enough grunt to do anything really of use. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see what Subaru does change because the, what we love about the current XV is that it looks rugged. It's quite good to drive in that sort of solid Subaru way. And obviously, it's got the image of being a little bit more adventurous and interesting than something like a Toyota CHR or a Kia Seltos. But I think more and more people are experiencing that a good hybrid actually is a really good powertrain for day-to-day driving. And if Subaru only offers a version of its old e-boxer engine in the new Crosstrek, it's going to feel dated and underdone very quickly. So... Fingers crossed the boxer has been drastically improved or that rumor about a 1.5 or a 1.8 litre turbo engine does actually come to life because the new car with the old engine is going to be quite a difficult thing to love, I think. Yeah, I think existing XV or even just Subaru brand diehards are going to lap this car up. It looks like the the two predecessor models, um, probably not quite as resolved as the first one, but in my opinion, a bit more resolved than the second one. Um, But it's very evolutionary. Very familiar on the inside to anyone who's seen the new Outback. As you said uh, earlier, guys, very similar drivetrains. That all-wheel drive system, as we found in our soft-roading mega test, is actually the best of the bunch. But, of course, only a very small number of people will ever take these sorts of cars off-road. The issue with this car is how is it going to broaden its interest base beyond just the real diehards that love the Subaru products with so much competition in one of the fastest-growing segments? The fact that it you know, stays so close to the familiar formula means that I think it's going to – you know, it's going to dwindle just because it doesn't have that flashiness or the new powertrains as some of its other competitors do. So it's going to be very interesting to see what uh, Subaru does, particularly on pricing. And I'd love for them to, to be able to give us a firm local launch time because it's a bit weird that they can't yet, frankly. Mm. Well, our last news story, I don't know if we have um, some dates confirmed yet for the new Jeep EVs that are coming to Australia, Jack. Uh, so Jeep has revealed um, a whole heap of little EVs, which is really cool to see. And we do have some timing for those of when a couple are going to be coming to Australia. Um, so I'm just going to throw out the names. So it's uh, going to be bringing what it calls the Recon and Wagoneer S to Australia, um, which are both slated to go into production in 2024. And um, it's also another one called the Avenger, which is a tiny little uh, a little crossover SUV, but that's um, yet to be locked in uh, for right-hand drive. So don't necessarily expect to see that in Australia at any time soon, if at all. So both um, the Jeep Recon and the Wagoneer S are based on the Stellantis STLA large uh, EV dedicated platform. And I'll get into more depth on what those vehicles, uh, what you, the the Recon and Wagoneer S are now, rather than just me saying the names. So the Recon is a little off roader. Uh, it's not really that little. It's more quite rugged, more than anything. Uh, designed to take on uh, the Rubicon Trail. It has all of this really cool off road tech. It has an um, e locker. It also has underbody protection, tow hooks off-road tires and our Jeep Select tra- uh, Terrain off-road modes. And uh, just like uh, the G- uh, the Gladiator and also the um, uh, the Wrangler, I should say. I don't know why I forgot that one. It's the most iconic 
model, uh, the doors and the glass uh, can be removed. And uh, also the Wagoneer S, which from what I understand is for now just a placeholder name, um, it will form um, an extension of the Jeep brand, pushing it more to a premium market. Um, a few things that Jeep is cl- are targeting with this so-called Wagoneer S, it wants to, to have um, 644 Ks of range, a 0 to 60 miles per hour a time of 3.5 seconds, and it also is targeting 447 kilowatts of power. So it's going to be a pretty quick thing for it. Oh, well, I'm trying not to, not to be nice, but pretty quick thing for a Jeep is how I would, uh, I would word that. And it also has um, a tapered off roof. So it's kind of coupe-like in a sort of way, which is strange to see from a Jeep. It's quite um, exciting. And um, one last thing, I'll go back to that little Avenger. It's, um, the, uh, the Avenger is the smallest one. It's more Eurocentric and won't be really be seeing that in Australia anytime soon is what I would have to say in particular. Um, but what do you guys think? Is there any of the, the three Jeep EVs that are your favourite? Look, for me, I mean, the little one I understand is aimed at the European market. I think it would do quite well here, actually, because there is a market for city-sized EVs, and if Jeep could price it right, I have no doubt people would would want it. But of the two that have been revealed, the Recon, it looks a little bit awkward to me in these pictures. It looks a little bit like someone's tried to combine a full-size regular Jeep SUV with a Wrangler, and in the end, it kind of looks a little awkward, almost like a Grand Theft Auto car. Um, I love the promise of the capability it'll have, and I have no doubt it'll be a beast off-road. But I think the Wagoneer S really delivers on what Jeep has been trying to do for a little while now in moving up market. We've driven the new Grand Cherokee L. We've seen the Wagoneer in the US, and they're, they're nicer versions of existing Jeep sort of design languages and materials and that sort of thing. This electric Wagoneer S looks like it takes things to the next level again and really it's sort of a clean start for Jeep where it can really explore this new upmarket premium American Range Rover thing it feels like it's going for. So of the two, I think that's that's the one I'd be more excited for, provided it's priced reasonably. Because if you're paying 125 grand for a Grand Cherokee L Summit Reserve, I know it's a slightly bigger car, but I shudder to think what a Wagoneer S might cost. Yeah, that recon has a lot of potential, doesn't it? I think it does look a little bit gawky from some angles. It also suggests, of course, that there won't be a full electric version of the normal Wrangler, given that you can remove the doors on it. But a a proper 4x4 capable removable door, you know, five-seat electric 4x4 is exactly the sort of vehicle that Jeep really needs to be honing in on. No brand is better placed to offer a vehicle like this than Jeep. No one has the kind of following in this sort of segment than Jeep. So I'm glad that it's going down that path. And again, provided it can get the basics right, I think it could be onto a real winner with a car like that because it's just not going to have a lot of competition. Well, you can head, uh, you can see that story at carexpert.com.au now and uh, take a look at the photos. Let us know what you think in the comments. Jack Quick, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The Genesis GV60 is here, the first all-electric car based on the eGUMP platform, the GMP platform. Uh, Very keen to hear what James Wong thought of it after spending some time behind the wheel at the recent launch in Melbourne. Hello, Jay Wong. Hello, hello. How are we all? Fabulous, thank you. Um, Look, I don't think many of us were taken by its looks when we first saw the reveal photos. What's it like in the metal? It's quite an interesting car and I I guess that's sort of like a way to put it in general. Like even, you know how sometimes you say, you know, you see it in person and it looks much better or it sort of all comes together. It's it's still... I don't know how to put it. I didn't hate it when I saw it in the metal, but it sort of still has an awkward rear end where it's got this sort of bulbous sloping tailgate and bumper treatment that sort of looks a little bit like upright. It's it's sort of giving a bit like 5 Series, 6 Series GT vibes from VW. You know, they're sort of like big, elongated, hatchbacky style things. So, you know, it's... It's an acquired taste. I think it also depends on how you spec it as well. There are so many different colors available and then the the character can really change based on that. We had some cars that were in, you know, a more um, subdued white, black, um, even a navy. Uh, and then there's also like this eye searing like lime color. Um, so 
it's it can really change the character and the look and you know the the you know the classic beauty of it, I guess, depending on what um, how you spec it. I warmed to it. I much prefer looking at it from the front than the rear. And I guess when you're driving it, you're not looking at the outside at all. So it's probably less of an issue. And the interior is actually really cool. So, um, yeah, I think it'll, it'll grow on people. And I guess a lot of these new dedicated electric vehicles are sort of a little bit funny and um, awkward looking from some angles anyway. So it's not necessarily that different from the wider uh, set of competitors. So, JWO, we know under the skin the GV60 is essentially the same car or a version of it as the Kia EV6 and the Hyundai Ioniq 5. What has Genesis done to make the GV60 feel different? And do you think it can justify the extra cost relative to those two cars, which are ultimately mechanically and electrically very similar? I figured this was going to come up in the discussion. <laughs> so um, the GV60 is a little bit sh- um, smaller in most dimensions than both the Ionic 5 and the EV6. So it's sort of pitched as like that smaller, more compact, sportier offering. Um, whether it delivers on that, I guess we can get um, to a, in a little bit with the driving impressions. But in terms of uh, can it justify its extra pricing, I think it really depends on how you look at it. The, the cabin is meaningfully more upmarket in terms of both the trims, the sound insulation, there's a bit more tech in the in the GV60 that is currently unavailable to the other two models. Like for example, the digital side mirrors we're not um, we don't get them in the Ionic Five yet, even though they're available overseas. And there's a few other things that, um, <clears throat> like the Nappa leather is, is quilted and it's like lining the cabin and all the different interior options in terms of colorways and things like that. Um, so there's a lot going on there that sort of adds to the premiumness of it. Whether it's worth the 20 grand upspend depending on which one you're looking at it's it's it is quite a lot of money um if you look at the gv60 from the performance model as well it's actually the most powerful version of that platform currently on sale and at least until the the ev6 gt and the ionic 5n arrive so it's running up to 360 kilowatts and 700 newton meters when you have it in boost mode which gives it a zero to 100 time of four seconds flat which is fast in anyone's books and when you look at it um compared to what um kia's claiming with a new EV6 GT, it's about half a second off from zero to 100. But, you know, you get a much nicer cabin. Um, and, you know, it, as far as we know, the EV6 GT might not actually be that that much cheaper from, you know, a, a starting price perspective once that arrives here in Australia later this year. So, you know, I guess it really depends on how you look at it. And I, I think for some people, they'll appreciate the, you know, the more compact dimensions. It doesn't look as much of a big hulking mum's car or dad's car depending on who's buying it um you know it obviously it really sticks out it's got a, it's got a wonderful cabin in terms of both the trims the design and everything and um you know i guess there's a a nicheness to owning a genesis that perhaps isn't um something that you get buying a hyundai or kia equivalent regardless of whether you're buying um one of their agmp products or one of their their normal cars so, Wongi, one of the major things that's held back the Ionic 5 and EV6, despite the fact that they're just all-round awesome cars, has been the complete lack of supply. You know, it's pretty hard to take over the world and beat Elon at his own game if you only get 100 or 200 cars at a time to flog to people, right? Is it the same story with the this Genesis as its more affordable mainstream uh, platform mates, or is Genesis actually getting decent supply? Uh, it depends on really how you look at it, and from what Genesis told us at the at the launch, they kind of said that it, there's no cap on how many are coming to Australia, but at the same time, they've only confirmed about 150, 160 units in the initial allocation, which should last. Either, I, I believe the the first six to twelve months of production, and you know, a hundred of them are already accounted for. So, I think for the, the benefit for Genesis of being the the luxury division and and like you know the flagship brand within that group is that you know the the volume is pro- arguably less compared to something like an Ionic Five or Kia EV6, which are really aimed at the European and North American markets at the moment, and. Because, you know, people or customers are paying a premium, they can sort of argue with the factory that, you know, we've got this amount of people that are inquiring, we need the cars. Um, It's like every other brand at the moment. It's not just um, 
isolated to the electric vehicles. It's across their lineup. They're facing wait times and supply issues as um, brands try to deal with component shortages still and all that kind of thing. So there should be about 150 and 160 on the way, at least with this first batch. Um, and then from there, the, the, their official line was we're constantly negotiating with the factory based on depend um, supply and demand so i guess if there are people that are wanting them and that exceeds the val- the unit allocation that of this first batch i i get the feeling that they should be able to make it happen a little bit easier than hyundai for example that randomly gets batches of 100 or 80 cars every six to eight months and then sells them online or kia has an official 500 unit run that might be 600 but other than that they can't really tell you so yeah it's a tough one to answer Jaywo, one of the things we've seen with eGMP cars so far is that the interiors have all been vastly different, but they've also all had really interesting design elements and things like floating magic seats and sliding consoles. How has Genesis combined its unique kind of design language with the freedom that eGMP brings? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and it's sort of like a mix there. They've, Genesis, I believe, tries to pitch to a more conventional old school buyer. So they've had to factor in maybe a, an older or more traditional buyer demographic, but then also being able to utilize the the benefits that come with such a modular um, dedicated EV platform. So there's some elements in there that you know, make it quite recognizable as an eGMP product. It's got the flat floor. You've got a very open plan. So, you know, there's like a floating center console and, you know, the the vehicle to load uh, – socket in underneath the rear seat um, and in terms of how everything sort of shaped and size it all sort of comes together quite and it feels related to those cars there are some bits that are quite obviously Hyundai linked as well but I guess one thing that I will point out in terms of um, the links to its its parent company is that you know, I know a few years ago we used to criticize Lexus products where it was so blatantly Toyota that it sort of made it feel cheap. Whereas the stuff that, you know, there are fonts and switches and things like that that sort of look like Hyundai or Kia ones, but they've been dressed up or, you know, they're the absolute best of the Hyundai and Kia switch gears and screens and whatever. <laughs> so it actually, it does feel like a nicer product. It doesn't feel like a part spin special or anything like that. And on top of that, you've got you know, the, the, the zero gravity seats in, in this one, they're called something else. There's another name for it. They're not called zero gravity. It's like relaxation seats or something like that. And you press the same button and then you can lean back and in an armchair style thing and you can wait for your vehicle to charge. And it's got the little pockets um, in the front and behind the center console, like the Ionic 5. And, you know, there is, yeah, there are some bits that you can sort of see that it's, it's based on the same platform or even the same vehicle. Um, but in terms of how it's all presented, it's it's a very interesting mix of worlds. You've got, you know, it's this really practical-minded thing where you've got storage nooks and crannies everywhere. You've got, you know, some of the more traditional bits where it looks like a conventional dashboard um, and there's a little bit more physical switchgear dotted about the place. And then you also get the really, you know, futuristic side of it where you've got these huge high-resolution displays everywhere. You've got four in front of, in front of you as the, of the driver. You've got a 12 and an 0.3-inch and display ahead of you as the instrument cluster. You've got the infotainment system that's also 12 and um, a quarter inches. And then you've also got two big square displays on each door that are the digital side mirror displays because it doesn't actually have mirrors. It's got cameras. And compared to something like the Audi e-tron, which I'm pretty sure I've spoken about on the podcast previously about how those digital side mirrors work and they're quite a polarizing piece of tech. Um, I actually found the Genesis ones quite intuitive by comparison. There are a lot, there's a much better viewing angle um, the, the displays are larger and sat higher in the cabin so you don't feel like you're awkwardly looking up and down constantly to try and see where you are. Um, Genesis has also incorporated like distance indicators. So and on top of the blind spot monitoring and um, viewing monitor where it projects the camera feed into your instrument cluster, it also has the distance markers so you can see how far behind your car is and they're all different colors so that you can see, you know, one's too close and one's a little bit further. Sort of like what Honda had on their lane watch system lane watch system so there's a few things in there that sort of go a di- go a certain distance to make it feel like a genesis or a, a step above the other egmp products but it also brings the stuff about that platform specifically that are so clever and well thought out righto wongy let's get to the main thing though how does it drive 
Well, it, it was an interesting thing to drive because obviously there are two variants there with two different power levels and, you know, the, the pitch from the Genesis team was that, you know, this is the sporty one. You know, they're launching three different products. You've got the um, GV60, the Electrified GV70, as well as the G80, and they're all very different looking and meant to have very distinct characters as well. Um, the GV60, I spent the most time in the performance. Um, so, you know, if, it's, if there's going to be a sporty version of the sporty one, that was the one that was going to be. Um, and uh-huh. we were driving um, out of the Melbourne CBD and out towards the Yarra Valley. So we got quite a mix of different roads. You had freeway, highway, suburban roads and all, the, all of the stuff that you'll likely encounter in a vehicle like that. And it was sort of like a, a mixed bag in the sense that, you know, it's obviously a very quick vehicle. You put it in boost mode and it absolutely snaps your neck as you, as you do full throttle. Um, you know, it's got very fairly accurate and predictable steering and it, it doesn't necessarily roll too much. The performance also gets um, a really clever system called um, – it's got this predictive suspension technology that uses the front-facing cameras to constantly um, adjust the damping force at any given time to give you the perfect ride at all times. Um, and even in the performance with its 21-inch wheels, it was always quite comfortable. There was a, on a few occasions it got a little bit busy over, you know, like high-frequency um, imperfections on the road, which is fairly normal on a vehicle riding on wheels that big but in terms of overall comfort especially once we hit some higher speed sections out in the country where you know you've got those sweeping roads with a hundred kilometer hundred kilometer an hour speed limits it was really really nice to just either drive in or be passenger in in terms of the handling and dynamics it was fine in those more sweeping longer bends but once you got there was this particular road on the way to King Lake where it's all, you're almost on a cliff face and it's a very tight technical stretch of road it was raining the day that we drove it as well and i just it was it just felt its weight it's a 2.1 2.2 ton vehicle and trying to go anything more than what you should in terms of you know accelerating in and out of corners and braking and things like that it definitely felt heavy and not quite cumbersome, but it just wasn't something that you wanted to really push and find the limit of in a scenario like that. Um, it definitely felt more comfortable on the the higher speed, less tight sort of road. So it, it feels very much like a GT rather than like a, a budget push Taycan, for example. Um, but, you know, it's very refined, very easy to place. Um, you've got good visibility despite all the camera wizardry and the, the weird window lines and all that kind of stuff. And um, in terms of overall comfort as well, it's just a really nice, easy thing to spend time in. Um, so I was quite impressed with how it feels you know, again, that little bit more comfortable and refined than something like an EV6 or an Ionic 5. Um, with that performance drivetrain, it's got a little bit more punch. It's about a ho- it's a whole second quicker to 100 um, compared to the all-wheel drive versions of the EV6 and Ionic 5. So it's got a little bit more performance if you if you can't be bothered waiting for an EV6. And obviously, you've got all that extra tech um, in the interior to sort of keep you Occupied. You've got a really great sound system. It's the first Bang & Olufsen sound system that Genesis have used. Um, we cranked it up a little bit um, while we were driving during the short time that we had the car and it sounded really nice. Um, and it's, it's got things like active noise cancellation and, you know, fake engine sounds so you can sort of tailor it to how you like. You can make it sound like a spaceship or, you know, a petrol engine or you can just let the, the, the speakers iron out all of the external noise so sometimes you might hear a little bit of like an echo of road noise over like coarse chip surfaces but considering how big the wheels are um and you know set the condition of some of the roads that we took it on it was a very very easy place to spend time so you know i I think this would appeal to you know families for example you could do a road trip in this as long as you had charging infrastructure on your route (laughs) because it can do the performance claims 466 kilometers between charges on the combined wltp cycle and the the non-performance one claims 470 so there's really not a lot in it um and you know that's pretty decent range by today's standards if not not necessarily stand out but you know considering the the breadth of performance and luxury and stuff on offer i imagine that it there there's some appeal there and um it definitely is a really nice thing to drive and you're not looking at it so the polarizing looks won't necessarily catch you off guard <laughs> 
I asked the question, you know, what's the demographic for this vehicle? Do you have a completely new buy set? Are you stealing from other brands? And they sort of said it was like a mix of everything. The GV60 they see is the more progressive vehicle in their lineup. So you're going to have maybe some more younger people or, you know, there's EV trailblazers that don't care if the vehicle looks like a science experiment. So, you know, they they said they've had and anticipate more people coming from Tesla, um, ordering queues from Hyundai and Kia um, showrooms who perhaps can't be bothered waiting for some of the other EGMP products or, you know, things like Mercedes with their EQA and EQB, the GV60 sort of slots between those two cars in terms of size and, and pricing. So you've got cars that you've got a car that sort of caters to that audience as well. And for someone, I feel like someone who wants to buy a Genesis is sort of happy to buy something a little bit different, but wants it to still be sort of understated. So, mm. you know, it, it does, it stands out, but it doesn't, you know, it's not as crazy perhaps as the the polarizing design suggests and i guess it also depends on how you spec them so it's yeah it's a really interesting product and i can see the appeal it's definitely not perfect but it's um it's definitely i think a worthy addition to the sprawling ev market i think more choice for the consumer can only be a good thing um the pricing at starting over a hundred thousand dollars is a little bit like a uh, question mark moment but you know, when you consider that a G, so not a GLA, an EQA 350, which has less power, less range, and is a physically smaller vehicle, um, when sort of equivalently spec is only about $3,000 more affordable. You can sort of see some value there. And I guess it's not about affordability with these, with something like a Genesis. It's more about the value. And this thing is absolutely decked out. There's no options other than matte paint, if you want matte paint. But everything that you see in the press images, you get for, you get standard, and you get a choice of two or three different interior colors. There's a huge range of color, um, exterior finishes, so you can really make it your own. And um, one of the press vehicles that I had was a you know this light metallic blue, and the interior was gray with like a metallic green leather upper bit, and it sort of looked like a Tiffany's jewelry box, but. You know, and it had this really cool flavor about a quite airy because it was a light cabin. And then there was another one that was that, you know, Sao Paulo yellow or lime with a navy leather interior and lime stitching. So you can have it almost like that looks like a tracksuit. There's really so many different ways that you can have this car. And I think that's something that we're starting to lose in some of the premium segments. You lose that configurability and, um, you know, that breadth of choice that uh, a lot of brands like BMW and Mercedes are starting to part back on to, you know, streamline and simplify their ordering process. So there's definitely some value there. And I think that anyone who wants to buy one won't be disappointed, I don't think. Very nice. You've given it a car expert rating of 8.5 and you can read that review now. Thank you, James Wong. Thanks for having me, team. Love the Ford Ranger, but you have a large family. Well, the next best thing you could buy is a Ford Everest, which is big enough to seat seven people. The new Everest is here, and Scully, you've been fortunate enough to put it through its paces at its recent launch. Um, Great to see Ford hasn't waited around to release this new Everest, unlike last time. Do you think this could be key in securing more sales as it's fresh right off the back of the Ranger release? I absolutely do. Um, Ford made it very clear at this launch that the last Everest, although it was a a thoroughly engineered vehicle, it was also something that they brought about quite late in the car's life cycle. And that brings all sorts of limitations and challenges and that sort of thing because ultimately in a car like the Ranger and the Everest, the body is kind of a top hat on top of the ladder frame chassis or the platform. And if the, the body that you're putting the top hat on isn't designed to support certain things, then then you're very yeah you're not able to do certain things. Ford made it clear with this new Everest that it was a part of the process from day one basically, and that allowed it to free up more space inside to make the car a bit more refined and to build into the platform affordances for some of the things that maybe people had criticised about Ute-based SUVs or about the Everest previously. Um, it, it's more of a ground up car than the last one was definitely. And how about the the prices? How do they compare from from last gen? Uh, Yeah, ground up car and prices up range wide, Um, (laughs) funnily enough. So the range kicks off at $53,000 for an Ambiente five seat with four by two, so rear wheel drive only. That aligns it with a relatively highly specced Pajero Sport or a mid-spec or base Isuzu MUX. 
The mid-range trend lines up with an Isuzu MUX LST 4x4, which is a range topper. Uh, and then at the top end, the Platinum is actually now a rival for the Toyota Prado VX. It's got a V6 engine, the Everest platform, uh, Platinum, and it's got a much nicer interior than before. But this is probably the first time that one of these ute-based SUVs has packed the equipment, but also packed the price to really line it up with the Prado, which is a staple of the segment and one of one of the favorite cars for people who want to take their families into interesting parts of Australia. So prices are up, capabilities also up. Hmm, cool. Did you get a chance to take it um, off the beaten track? We sure did. So this launch was on the back of the Raptor launch we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They were back-to-back days. And we drove the whole range by turbo and V6 on the road and off the road. So we really got a good chance to explore what the car can do. Off-road, it feels a bit like a Ranger. I know that at the rear it's got a coil suspension rather than leaf springs and the body itself is different, but fundamentally it feels the same as a Ranger, which means that if you're an amateur off-roader, especially the higher-end models, have enough electronics there that you can, rather than worrying about what the diffs are doing, what mode you're in, you can just tell the car, I want to drive through some mud and it'll set itself up properly for you. It'll give you cameras so you can see the corners easily and you can just kind of charge on through. If you are a serious off-roader, there's also manual control of all that stuff. But I think with a car like the Everest, especially the top-end Platinum, although people will take these off-road, they're not necessarily going off-road because they want to get stuck up to their axles in mud. They're going off-road because it gets them somewhere they want to be, be it a campsite or a, a view or whatever it is, a lookout or a hike. The last Everest was already pretty good at this, uh, and most of these ute-based SUVs are. What the new one does is it moves the game forward a little bit by being a little bit easier to use again, thanks to some of the screen tech inside. It also has a wider track. The suspension's been retuned and Ford says it really focused on removing head toss, which is when you're going over lumpy roads and you sort of feel like you're a bobblehead and your head's rolling from side to side. Compared to the older car, it definitely feels a little bit more settled off-road. It feels a little bit more like you float over surfaces that throw you around in the older one. Um, But yeah, the big step forward is how easy the tech is to use. I will also say that although we are probably going to spend a lot of time talking about the V6 and it is a lovely engine off-road because it's got so much smooth torque down low, the bi-turbo has been retuned for the new Everest like it has the Ranger. And where the last Everest engine, it felt a little bit busy, even at lower speeds, it didn't know quite what gear it wanted to be in and where it wanted to be in the rev range. The new one feels more confident. It doesn't shuffle around the gears as much. It doesn't surge as much when you put your foot down. And that makes it a nicer engine to drive when you're going over tricky terrain because you feel like you can trust a little bit more what it's going to do when you just gently lean on the accelerator. So there are definitely going to be people out there who are towing or who are doing some more serious off-roading who want the torque of the V6. And um, I can understand that. But the bi-turbo does feel like if you are doing that sort of thing, it's been improved as an engine as well. So I'm looking at this thing, great looks, really nice interior, having spent time in the Ranger, already know that. Aussie engineering, nobody does it better for, for local you know roads and conditions. Uh, great engine range, as you just mentioned, the V6, 10-speed auto, plenty of features. Aside from familiarity, what reason would you have for buying a Prado over one of these? It looks, on paper at least, who comprehensively outgun Australia's favourite large off-roady 4x4 uh, in just about every conceivable way, aside from the fact that Toyota has a few more dealers and a slightly better reputation. Am I missing something here or, or does that kind of sum it up? I think that kind of sums it up. I think time will tell on the reliability in the dealer network front and what it lacks in features, what it lacks in tech and refinement, that sort of thing. The Prado does ultimately have time on its side. And if you are going to take four kids deep into the wilderness, that does really count for something. But based on our first drive, especially in the case of the Platinum V6, the Everest feels like a more resolved car all around. When you're sitting inside it, it's got a more up-to-date modern tech suite. And I don't think it's nearly as nicely appointed, but I would argue that vertical 12-inch screen and the wireless CarPlay and the digital dash are actually more modern and more up-to-date than what's in the new Land Cruiser 300 series, let alone the older Prado, which is based on an older platform and tech from Toyota. 
Um, the way that it drives on the road, it feels more grown up and more refined. It's still definitely based on a ladder frame, but when you're driving it around long sweeping bends and that sort of thing, the Prado feels quite floaty and quite loose and wants to roll over its outside front wheel. And it's the same story with an MUX and a Fortuna and that sort of thing. The Everest feels just another step on from those cars in the fact that it can actually support itself and, and feels planted and stable and sort of halfway between something like a Santa Fe and something like an MUX. It, it straddles that line between car and ute-based SUV really nicely. So um, I understand the appeal of the Prado because people have had Toyotas before and they want them again. And I think we're going to have to wait and see longer term how the Everest holds up. But based on our first experience, yeah, it it feels like the superior car. Interesting. Um, what did you think of the cabin practicality in the space? So it's one of the areas that is often compromised in these cars because it's tricky to package a really practical, flexible interior on a ladder frame chassis when you've got spare wheels under the floor, diffs, all that sort of thing. Ford has definitely made some improvements. Up front in particular, I'm awkwardly tall, as we've talked about on the podcast before, and I find it really difficult to get comfortable in these cars often because the seats are quite high, the wheels don't adjust properly. I would happily drive a Ranger or an Everest across Australia. Uh, the seat goes far enough back and low enough. The steering wheel adjusts for reach and tilt. Already, if you're spending a lot of time in the car, that puts it ahead of a lot of its rivals. Um, the rear seats are, are decent, but they didn't blow me away. Legroom is really good uh, relative to the Fortuna, especially that we had through recently. It's definitely got more space back there. And if you're sitting in the outboard seats, it really feels light and airy. It's got tall windows and quite a flat body on the sides, which Ford says was done because the what people want from the car and what it's trying to do with the car has changed from when it did the last Everest. Um, it's also, like in the Ranger, it's put the door handles in the door grabs rather than up mm. on the top of the door trims. And if I say door one more time, I'm going to have a stroke here. Um but it's done a whole lot of things that are designed to make the cabin feel more open and area. And look, to be honest, I don't know if the door trim is actually thinner than it would be if they'd used a normal door handle. But I do know that even for me sitting in the back, I didn't feel hemmed in like my shoulders and my knees were being pushed against the sides of the car. And if you've got tall teenagers in the back on long drives, that's really valuable. Headroom isn't great in the back of the Platinum with its sunroof. And all of them have a tunnel running through the roof where the air vents go. So there's air vents for the second and the third rows. If you're trying to sit tall people back there, especially in the middle seat, they won't have their head on the roof, but they will probably notice that eats a little bit into it, but it's still by the standards of the class very good. Um, second row slides and the third row is again, one of the best in the ute class. Ford says the wider platform underneath the Everest, the wider track, means that it could move those seats further apart because there's this wheel arch in the way. And I wouldn't want to spend much time back there. I wouldn't want to put tall kids back there. But if you're putting smaller kids or younger sort of teenagers back there for the school run, they're, they're going to be comfortable enough to, to not want to kill each other when they get out. It definitely feels better thought out and better packaged than the last Everest. And even though it was getting on a bit, the last Everest was one of the better thought out and better packaged ute-based SUVs out there. So I think ultimately, if you want to carry lots of people in comfort for similar money to a Platinum, a Hyundai Palisade or a Kia Carnival is going to do a better job. But if you do want something that you can take off-road and still has the flexibility of seven seats, the Everest definitely fits that bill better than pretty much all of its rivals. How did you find the car on uh, a straight stretch of bitumen? Uh, it's impressively quiet. Uh, I think someone at Ford is a Sandra Bullock fan. They kept talking about a quiet place. Um, <laughs> but compared to even the new Ranger, which is one of the more refined dual cab utes out there, there's a bit of extra sound deadening. And, and Ford says it's tweaked the way the ladder frame flexes relative to the Ranger with the goal of making it a more comfortable place to spend time. We spent a lot of time on the highway in Queensland behind the wheel and I would argue pretty much everything they said they've done, they actually have executed. At 100 k's an hour or 110 on some pretty average Aussie country roads, there's a little bit of noise from the tyres and the mirrors, but it is very, very quiet and refined. And the engine, especially the V6, when you're not accelerating hard, 
you don't really notice. It doesn't feel like a clattery diesel tractor. So on that front, Ford has really delivered. How well it rides and how comfortable it is is very dependent on spec. The base Ambiente on its 17-inch alloys rides the best of any of them. Um, you can get an off-road wheel package on more expensive models that gives you 18-inch wheels. And with that fitted, the Everest, even in platinum spec, is really lovely and comfortable and, and feels like a great long-distance tourer. The platinum can also be had with some really flashy-looking 21-inch alloy wheels. They come with highway terrain as opposed to all-terrain tires, and they're, they're aimed at making the Everest a little bit more acceptable in the sort of school car park where you might see lots of X5s and that sort of thing. They're sort of trying to make it a bit more prestige or platinum, I suppose. Um, they look great but they do damage the ride quality. You definitely feel things a little bit more and it's a bit busier when you're on sort of roads with lots of little bumps in them. I'd still happily drive it a long way, but I think if ride comfort is a focus for you, that off-road wheel package is definitely a box worth ticking. Did Ford mention how long the wait times are for the Everest? It did. So as is the case with the Ranger, if you want to buy turbo, and the buy turbo engine is offered on the base Ambiente and the one up from base trend, you can get one pretty much straight away. The demand for this car has mostly been from people who want the V6, the early adopters. If you're after a, a Platinum or a Sport, you're probably going to be waiting until May 2023. And Ford has actually said that pricing and specs might be different at that point. So you can get in the queue, but there's no guarantee what you're buying then will look exactly like what you'd be buying now. It's not likely to change too much, but it is worth noting that if you're quite close to the end of your budget, you may need to add a little bit more fat to it because as we know, year-on-year -year car prices are rising. Mm. It's worth noting that unlike the Ranger, the bi-turbo Everest has full-time four-wheel drive, which means that you can leave it in for auto mode on normal roads when it's dry and that sort of thing and you won't damage the differentials. One of the big reasons that I think you would buy a V6 Ranger over the four-cylinder is that you can leave it in for auto and it just behaves like a normal SUV and so you're not worried about losing traction, you're not worried about slipping around when it does rain on the school run. In the Everest, I understand there's a big difference between the spec of the trend and the sport but I will say if you're willing to accept a slightly lower spec car with a few less luxuries, one of the big things that you give up when you go from the V6 to the bi-turbo in the Ranger is that full-time four-wheel drive and the Everest does get it. So, yeah, uh, for me, I'd, I'd still be looking at the Sport. It represents the best balance between standard specs and power and luxury and all that sort of thing. But if you can't wait until May 2023 and plenty of people need a new car now, the bi-turbo with full-time four-wheel drive is an even more convincing powertrain in the Everest than it is in the Ranger. Interesting. Can you take us through, finally, the car expert rating that you gave it? So the car expert rating for this bad boy is a strong start. Um, most often we score cars a little bit lower on launches because we don't get a, a great amount of time behind the wheel. But even with that in mind, we've given an 84 its strongest elements are definitely the technology and the, the dynamics and ride comfort. They're its, its best scores. Its lowest score was for value at 7.5. And even that, when we get it side by side with a Prado and with some of us other rivals might change. But on the face of it, even though it is a very good ute-based SUV, it is still a very expensive ute-based SUV. So when we get individual variants through, those scores might change. But for the moment, that's the starting point. Excellent. That review is live at the site now. Very well written, Scully, and said. <laughs> thank you and thank you. All right, to round out this week's podcast, MoCo, what have we got coming up in the garage? We have got a blizzard of new and exciting metal coming through, particularly Melbourne, our biggest office. Lexus LX600 with its baller limo-like back seats. A couple of Cupras headlined by the Formentor plug-in hybrid VZE that I've got at the moment. The newly launched Suzuki S-Cross Prestige, overpriced but not terrible. Um, we've also got a couple of utes coming through, uh, the Hilux SR5, Navara Pro Forex Warrior and several Ford Rangers in their new generation form for a very exciting upcoming video project the team are doing. We also have a BYD Atto 3 coming through. Uh, a lot of people have been asking us about that car, the market's second most affordable electric vehicle, 
pretty much bang online ball with the MGZS. Very exciting, new brand, extremely curious to see how that performs. Um, and we've also got, of course, uh, a couple of performance cars up in Brisbane because Brisbane wouldn't be Brisbane without being our performance car hub. Audi S3 sedan, Hyundai Kona N, and the new Nissan Z, this time in the nine-speed automatic. Probably not the uh, the uh, enthusiast's favourite gearbox, but the one that a lot of people will nevertheless be interested in buying. Yeah, definitely. And, Scully, where is the team off to as well? Uh, I think we're all off on a national day of mourning for Her Majesty the Queen, as James has written in our shared calendar. A true Um, car enthusiast. True car enthusiast. So the car expert team, Tony is off driving a Bentley Bentayga in Vancouver at the moment. It's the extended wheelbase version. So I'd imagine he's sitting in the back seat, sipping a mimosa, just lapping up the, the sights and sounds uh, given that's what that car's target audience should be doing. Next week, Paul and our videographer, Sean, are off to Colorado to drive the Mercedes EQE and EQS. Uh, I believe it may be the SUV versions of those they're driving, which will be very interesting because Mercedes has this big electric push lined up, but we haven't seen much of the product in Australia just yet. We've got Angus McKenzie in Spain driving the Audi RS4 and RS5 competition, uh, and I'm going to be off to Sydney to drive the Volkswagen Tiguan Adventure, which is a five-seat version of the seven-speed Allspace with some rugged outdoorsy bits on it. So there's a bit going on. Uh, I think there's a few people, not just at Car Expert, but in general, looking forward in Victoria to Thursday and Friday off this week. So if you are sitting at home yeah. looking for something to do, make sure you check Car Expert and get the latest car news. <laughs> All right, Mike Costello and Scott Colley, been a pleasure. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.